Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Now, our guest today is Jenny Derrick. Jenny is the dean and a professor at Claremont University's Drucker School of Management. In her work, she examines macroeconomic policy that advances sustainable innovation. She's the author of two books, Marketing Through Turbulent Times and Why Marketing to Women Does doesn't work. While at the University of Otago, she developed New Zealand's first Masters in Entrepreneurship, which included a citywide incubator to foster and develop startups. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So, Jenny, can you take a minute to tell us just a little bit more in your own words about specifically the MA in Art Business at uh, the Drucker School? That's a great question. So, at the Drucker School, we already had a track record dealing with the creative economy. We had a number of programs in place. And Sotheby's Institute of Art approached us to partner with them and develop an MA in art business. Now, the audience that we tend to attract are primarily art historians and visual artists who are wanting to understand how to embed management practices around their passion, which is visual arts. So I'm interested in what skills specifically are being taught in the program, because it seems like there would be a, a different set applying to visual artists than art historians, or is that not right? They all go through the same classes, but what I find as a management professor, the thing that I find most amusing is in the first couple of weeks of class, the students will be sitting outside during break and they, they'll say things like, I never thought in my lifetime I would ever be in a business school. I just never thought that would be a possibility. And yet what we end up with is incredibly talented students who realize that they need to understand a little bit of accounting, a little bit of finance, the marketing, some intellectual property law, uh, work to do with the investment of art. If they truly want a vibrant career managing art and art collections, they need a little bit more than just purely understanding the art. So it sounds like there's a, a bit of a mental pivot that has to happen. What would you say is the most significant uh, change of mind or mindset uh, that specifically a visual artist has to make uh, to, to succeed in a program like this that's about business? I would say the first comment, actually, to your question would be a qualitative shift, and that is to believe and have confidence in their abilities, because what I find is the visual artists and the art historians, they, they tend to be incredibly smart and interesting and multidimensional students who also write very well, but they just don't have the vocabulary of business, but they often have a common sense of business and that's what's drawn them into the program but the thing that probably trips the students up the most would be the quantitative aspect you know learning accounting and finance and the things that they have to do but just being open-minded and embracing that that taking a commercial approach to art is, is okay it's not a bad thing to do it can ultimately end up to net gains I'm still interested. It seems to me just you know instinctively that a, a visual artist and an art historian occupy perhaps even more different worlds than, say, a visual artist um, who thinks of him or herself as an entrepreneur and a visual artist who thinks of this as sort of a calling and uh, it should be somehow free or purified from the needs of, of business or entrepreneurship. So so let's look at that that distinction between the visual artist and the potential art historian. It strikes me that uh, this program somehow manages to close the gaps between those two groups and bring them together. And yet, art historians have to follow sort of a narrative. There's a continuity in their analysis of art. 
where it, it strikes me that the most common force we see in visual art today is an almost unwillingness to situate art within a historical tradition and almost a, a disputation against tradition and sort of a, a flight into um, the wholly abstract and theoretical. Do you see that as accurate or is that something that's shifting or have I missed it altogether? Is there something else going on here? I love the question. You make me think of things in a different way, which I'm grateful for the question. I think what happens is that we do allow students some flexibility and there are different uh, concentrations that they can take. But that your analysis probably explains why the capstone projects look quite different. So we will have the student who's very entrepreneurial. We've had uh, students looking at you know, more commercialization of art and art, and, and art collections, but then we have had other people who've been interested in the management of collections. So I, I think the answer would be that both can coexist, and that makes for an interesting dynamic in the classroom. But you're right, there are subtle differences, but even there are personality differences and different goals, career outcomes that the students have. You know, some want to have their own gallery and just simply that, and that that's their goal, and others want to have something maybe more ambitious where they might manage a collection for someone or become an art collector or an art dealer. Mm. So let me ask you sort of another related question then. Um, how do the skills that the programs that the program teaches impact visual artists' long-term self-employment prospects? Um, and I ask that with the context that sort of, you know, hey, a visual artist is almost by definition an entrepreneur simply because it's not a, a nine to five job with a W-2 paycheck. So you are self-employed. Does this equip you with uh, skills to succeed better than if you had not taken the program? It's a really good, and I'm going to answer this more uh, thinking of my sibling, who's a visual artist, and we had this exact conversation a number of years ago where she didn't want to sell out. You know, she wanted to be pure and, and true to her art, but she didn't want to sell out, and she was really struggling with how to create her own identity in the art world. And I, I get it, I completely understand it, but I think that the message that we would give is that you're still trying to create your own brand in the art world, you're trying to make sure you're known for a certain style or, or statements using art and if you want to be commercially successful you do need to hustle a little bit to make sure you become known in different art circles however that however you want to play that game but I think it's an important skill that we have to have otherwise people may not know about our art and we may not be able to share it with the world because we will remain a hidden gem. So Jenny, you know, a lot of artists uh, struggle to get 100% of their living from their work. I mean, we often see huge percentages of their income derived from a mixture of teaching and odd jobs and only, you know, often less than 45% of their income uh, coming from sort of the actual production of art. And some have said to me that they um, hear a common refrain from people in your position that sort of if you're good enough as an artist, it won't matter um, that if you're good enough, the art world will find you and make you famous. So focus everything on your craft. Uh, and why bother with this sort of entrepreneurial or, or business skills approach? Um, do, you, do you find that notion or that, that kind of statement to be mythological or outright offensive? Or do you think there's some truth in it? I think it's a bit troubling, actually. And I think if you look across all forms of creative expression, whether it's writing poetry, writing novels, you know, producing music, writing and composing music and producing music. There's an abundance of um, product, if you will, of art out on the market. 
and 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 it's and there's so many different ways of distributing these product to customers to end users and i think just to be good now sadly is not enough and i think that's true of many professions the people who rise to the top sure there are some people who get lucky breaks and they're probably a minority to be perfectly fair but i think the people that rise to the top they get there because they work really really hard at making sure their brand is known that people know who they are that they get in front of the right people and unfortunately some people just don't want to play by those rules but I think to me that probably defines a lot of very successful artists they've probably got out there and really hustled and again as I say some of them could have had good breaks they could have been introduced to different communities by you know what I call brand endorsements other you know leading critics or, or artists but for most people if you if they're truly truthful about how they've got there they've got there through a lot of hard work yeah, it's fascinating because uh, I hear people, descri- every artist I hear people describe as an example, from, from Jackson Pollock to Van Gogh, we can immediately debunk that and show that um, they had some source of publicity, um, whether it was they themselves or they, they had a partner, a co-pilot that was the talker for them that made sure that, you know, that they met the right people and, the, and that their work traveled. They had some form of um, selling or contact management where they tracked who the right people were to talk to, um, so therefore sales, and that, uh, and some method of maintaining and nurturing those leads or those contacts. And they had some kind of compelling brand story. It wasn't just, here's this art that comes out of nothing, view it in a contextless environment, but it, it was, here's this art done by this artist with this amazing... Uh, purpose behind it in this amazing historical or cultural context. So there was a, there was marketing. There was a compelling brand story. So I hear all of that stuff, and uh, when I hear people say that, you know, well, if I'm if I'm good enough, I won't. I will make it. I'm like, well, yeah, if you're good enough at the whole thing. <laughs> but if it's just that your art is is good, um, you end up shoving your portfolio in front of people over and over without earning the right for someone to look at your portfolio. And I, I think that's a little bit of, uh, that's my interpretation of what you're saying, that one must learn the skills and be good also in the other ways. Um, is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, it's fair. One of the things you made me think of when you started the question, a lot of people don't become famous until they've died. And so, <laughs> you know, so you're still going to make a living while you're alive. You know, so, but, but let me go back to properly answer your question. You know, if you think of the principles of marketing, which is my trade, you know, not, not visual arts, and your listeners have probably figured that out, but my trade is marketing. And marketing to me, I don't care what I'm marketing, but the principles are the same. You've got to figure out who your target audience is, what you're offering the target audience, what your value proposition is, therefore that becomes embedded in your brand. And then you've, you've got to make sure you can reach the target audience. And, and you talked about selling, sales management, um, through different communication strategies that you have, through how you distribute your art, you know, through gallery showings and, and the like. And you know, these, these are important skills. And I think the other part that many of us struggle with, and especially those who are creative, you know, do you stay with one style and one genre and really be known for that? Or do you give yourself permission to jump and change through your career? And, and I haven't seen any research on that, but I think when you look at different people's careers in different areas, 
to be known for something and stay true to one you know, form of expression can actually do you more good because you're building your brand as being known as one style of art. And I think that's also troubling for people who are creative. They want to experiment and try different things and, and reflect and, and react to the circumstances that they find themselves in. And that may not help them as they're building their brand. Well, it's uh, it's certainly an adventure. Um, Atsuko, one of the artists in our um, graduate program from a couple of years ago, uh, was uh, exploring making this shift. And I would liken it to, if, if our audience, if our listeners uh, have heard of Fleetwood Mac, I would liken it to uh, when Fleetwood Mac stopped being a, a blues band uh, with many, many albums under their wing uh, and became essentially a super band in pop and both were interesting fascinating eras and both have their fans and their fans who are crossovers and so it's very difficult to say that one is better than the other um, but they essentially shifted their brand narrative along with the brand so the work itself didn't have to bear it all um, they had different reasons and they were shifting for the times uh, and so there's a, a different mood as well so i can see a case for um, allowing your brand to evolve. I'll say one other thing, Jenny, is I had a, uh, have a colleague whose analysis of what's going on with sort of explosion of abstract expressionism and almost clone-like abstract expressionism, you know, sort of throw paint at the wall, see what sticks, uh, and there you go, that's art, to the point that it's become cliche, that some of that is an attempt to, be, to find your uniqueness and so therefore reject anything that's like a rule because then that wouldn't be defining your own unique brand. And so there's an extent to which one can go to the direction of defining a unique brand to the point of rejecting everything else and you get sort of this random, bizarre mix, the, the, artist, the visual arts version of Schoenberg in music. And, and people can get confused, you know, what am I listening to? <laughs> Bird chirping noises and tiddlywinks? Or is it part of a musical tradition? So I see this as a constant narrative of do I, do I define my brand or do I let my brand evolve? Well, you, you made me think, when you were talking about Fleetwood Mac, you made me think of Bob Dylan. So, you know, he keeps reinventing himself. And I and I used to go to Bob Dylan concerts. I don't think I'll go to another. But he would only play his more recent music and not play his old music. And and I think that's, a just as you've used Fleetwood Mac, I think that's an interesting example because you've got an audience that knows you for one style of music. And then, you know, through your new works, you're trying to attract another audience. The downside is that you can alienate your core audience. And that's something we always play that game, no matter what the creative form is we, we, or, or product form, physical goods. By evolving and letting the brand evolve, we can pick up new, but we can alienate the old. And the other thing you made me think of when you were talking about you know, the, the contemporary art, the modern art, you know, in marketing, there's a real tension that goes on. Do I give the market what it wants? Or do I do something completely different and, and surprise the market and that becomes my point of difference in the market? And I think the same tension exists in the visual arts. If there's an expectation as to what modern art should look like, do you become one of the many who can produce art of that kind? Or do you make a bold statement and actually redefine how we look at contemporary art today? And, and that's an so, so the safe move is to follow the pack. But the more con unconventional move is to go out with something more more different. The high it's a higher risk game. If you can pull off the different, you can become known for some a particular style of art. But the risks are higher. 
Uh, that's profound. I, I almost think the most uh, radical action in modern art would be to, to do realist uh, figurative art and, and sort of reject the, the direction of, of the, the full association of modern art with abstract expressionism that we've seen and say, hey, that's, that's modern last year. This is what's new. But I remember when I was in college, this came up a lot that, you know, do you do as a graduate student, do you do research that sort of breaks new ground and you go off and people don't believe in you and you're not sh- and it's not going to help you until you win uh, and you take a lot of risk? Or do you follow the path set by your professors and do research that helps them sort of publish or perish and and pursue their um, their own uh, trajectories and career and sort of help them? And I remember someone saying to me, you know, you need to follow the well-trodden path because if you do that one day, if you're lucky, you'll you'll be a professor at a Midwestern rural school, and uh, and and, be, and then other people will be following you. And I thought, oh yeah, no, I want to break new ground. I'm out of that. And uh, that's really it, the trajectory of of continuing to <laughs> to uh, to follow the well-trodden path. It's a great question. So now you're making me think of Mick Jagger, and I don't know. I don't know whether he himself quoted this or whether it just comes from jazz. But the idea that you shouldn't improvise until you know what you're doing, <laughs> and, and and it's what you made me think of. But there's, it's a real risk because if you're if you're a student of of any discipline, you know the safe route is to to show that you can copy and you can follow and you can join a conversation that already exists, and then you can run off and do your own thing. And there's a really interesting article that I remember when I was a younger academic called That's Interesting. It comes out of sociology and it even explains it in the context of how people can make sense of new things, that we need to make sense of new things by anchoring it in the familiar and even if you're going to produce, let's say, new art, maybe the narrative around the new art might anchor it in, in, in what's familiar but then you take people on a journey to explain how you're different. Well, I think that, you know, back to your point about do you surprise the audience? Uh, that's what Steve Jobs essentially said. He took a little flack for it, saying the audience doesn't know what it wants. Uh, but his point was that uh, if we took a survey and we built computers based on surveys, we'd build you a PC, but you're not happy with the PC, are you? And so if we tell the audience what they want, if we, if we say, look, I have a vision for advancing this to where uh, a computer is a lifestyle choice that has a design element that fits into your life uh, and is unobtrusive and, and, and sort of is part of the flow of your life. Um, and you don't believe me yet, and that sounds crazy because you can't visualize it, but I can, so I'm going to exercise leadership and build it. Is that more powerful than doing the survey of the audience and saying, how do we build more of it? I got to say that as an entrepreneur myself, um, I'm approached by people who want to help their companies uh, reach a wider audience with marketing. Um, that's the kind of company I, I run and a, comp- a company that helps people find their brand story and reach a, a wider audience. But they fall quickly into two categories, a company that has a vision to do something and that becomes part of the narrative and a company that wants to copy something. (laughs) And, you know, hey, Uber's making a killing and Lyft is making a killing. I want to be the Uber and the Lyft because I I think there's a little bit of market share left that they're not snapping up. How can I, I don't have anything new, but how can I be that? And I always find that it's so much easier to reach an audience with a compelling narrative. Even if you get the narrative wrong, they'll forgive you and let you shift, you know? So, so when you use the example of computers, I was thinking about the one with the Model T Ford, and, and Ford famously said, if I did marketing research on 
you know, I would have just made a, a more comfortable buggy and faster horses, you know, the same kind of thing. And the, the way that I would articulate or, or respond to what you've just said is that I, if you think of a continuum and you anchor one end with problems and the other end with solutions, a lot of what we do when we go and do marketing research, we're asking consumers to tell me what problems they have and how can we make it better for you and we might make it cheaper or faster or more comfortable or different flavors or provide better service. And all we're really doing is fine-tuning a business model that people are somewhat familiar with and that they can provide feedback. At the other end of the continuum, when we start with solution, and I think the best way to think of this is sort of you know, pharmaceutical research or, or you know, groundbreaking R&D, we don't always know what the product will do. So we, we're developing core technologies and we don't really know how to apply them. I, I personally feel, and so if you imagine a, a line and there's an anchor at each end, I kind of feel that we need to swirl around the middle. We need to be tuned into the market to know where the market's at, but we need to pay attention to what's new and what's possible and allow ourselves to work in a slight world of ambiguity where we can't, probably we won't be successful if we're completely devoid of where the market's at because we've at least got to make sure that they can make sense of it. But we don't want to just circle around the same swimming pool and just tighten things up. So I hope that makes sense. So it's sort of, sort of a, a combining both together answer to, to your earlier question. No, it, it does make sense. Uh, and I think, you know, just asking visual artists to consider these issues uh, is important because um, there's so many artists who will say I don't have a brand, um, and I say, well, then you don't you don't really have an audience yet, <laughs> you know, because um, you, what you're saying to me is one one can expect nothing out of me or randomness out of me or anything out of me, but one cannot build really an expectation. You know, each work is sort of one, one day I might do an oil painting and the next day I might make you pasta. <laughs> and so there, a brand is, it creates that expectation. So however one answers these questions, wherever one lands, uh, I think we're both agreeing on that development of a brand. I want to ask you specifically, um, this is a related question, but it spins off in a slightly different direction. Now, in the preparatory call for the show, where we sort of, you know, talk to you about um, the nature of the show and, and invite you on board and so on, you had mentioned something uh, sort of off the cuff that there are, at least this is how we heard it, there are differences in the art market on the West Coast um, as opposed to the East Coast, and that that was one factor in developing uh, the Drucker Art Management Program. I want to ask you, did we get that right, and is that still the case? And if, and if that's accurate, what are the differences in the markets specifically? Because I think that affects how people structure their brand too, where they are and who they're appealing to. Yeah, I probably can't give an answer to that. I, I think what I was meaning, um, and then I'll give you an answer, is more that the students wouldn't cross to the West or cross to the East. So I'll give you an answer now. So editor, listen. <laughs> uh, when we designed the art business program, we designed it to cater for an audience that was on the West Coast. And we just simply found that students who lived on the East Coast wouldn't come to the West Coast. But what we do in our programming is we take students on tours. So we take them up to Asia to understand the art market in Asia. We take them down to Mexico, for example, to understand the, the art market in Mexico. And we really want to make sure the students develop a broad understanding of any differences. And the differences can be subtle within you know, geographic markets, but that they come out with a really broad, rich understanding of how the art markets operate in different contexts within different audiences, no matter where they're based. Well, let me ask you then another question about specifically the Drucker program. And the Claremont School has two programs, 
Um, one is the MA in art business, and the other is the MA in arts management, uh, which is a totally different tack. I wonder if you could uh, first, just as a matter of a point of fact, explain to us the difference b- uh, between the two programs, but also uh, help me to understand, do visual artists stick mainly to the art business degree that we've been talking about, or do they also, perhaps even in equal numbers, fill out the arts management side? They're really good questions. So we, we first launched the art management degree. That was launched in 2004. And the intent of that degree was, was to take any form of art, whether it be museums, theatre, music groups, whatever it was, and to train the students in the management of that form of art and with a big bias toward non-profit management. Then came the art business degree. Now, what we found over time, a lot of our students coming into the program, they're actually not sure which program they want to go into. And we find our numbers actually fluctuate every year. One will be up and one will be down and the next year the other way. So what we do primarily now is we bring all of the students in together for one semester and they're mostly mixed up, even though they may come in with a particular point of view in terms of what they want to do. And then we work with them to make sure they ultimately end up in the right program and taking the right concentration within the program. And that's done with good intention because I think a lot of people who come out of college and have some work experience and let's say with a visual arts degree or a Uh, art history degree they're not really sure so there's a lot of exploration in terms of what could be possible what are my career options what looks exciting to me today may be completely uninteresting to me in the future so that's a little bit of what we do in our process is just expose the students to multiple different options to help them in their own journey to figure out what to do next Uh, you know that makes me want to ask you a couple of questions so one um, would be you know, if you were to sum it up neatly, what does a complete, well-rounded arts business and management education look like? What are the core ingredients? I don't mean necessarily the core syllabus, but I mean, what must one learn? And then secondly, if I may just tack on a related question, um, to some people, it seems that auction houses sort of reside at the top of the power structure hierarchy um, within the arts. Um, If there is a hierarchy Um, whether or not that's the top or the middle or what have you, does arts education reposition um, artists within that hierarchy or challenge the status quo when it comes to perceived power relationships merely by the fact of garnering an education? I think if I answer the second question first, I say absolutely yes. I think we demystify the art world for a lot of students, and some would know how the art world works anyway, but I think education provides empowerment and education provides people with a different voice and a different vocabulary and a different set of questions that they could ask different institutions in the case you've given the the auction houses. So I think it puts people in a far stronger position. If I go back to the first part of your question, without getting into curriculum details, I think the best way to conceive of the degree is to, to think of it in three parts. Half of it's business, half of it's art and the practice of art, and then there's a capstone project as well. So, so what's interesting with that, some students will come in really strong on art and very weak on business. 
others will come in perhaps with a stronger background in, in business and less of a, a, a strong background in art. And our goal is to, to sort of repackage them out the other end where they've got at least an appreciation for both sides and they can bring the two together and complement. And then because we put a final project in it's a consulting type of project so sometimes it's to set up their own business so some students want to set up their own practice whether it's as a visual artist or maybe running a gallery or as an art consultant that's quite a common project as well that we see come through and others may want to, to do something within an existing organisation and look at some project that they can implement with an existing company. So a lot of different choices but as I say it's a 50-50, if you think of it as 50-50 business training and, uh, and art and the appreciation of art, I think that's a good way of understanding how the degrees work. You know, in our, our own educational programs at the Clark Healings Fund we sort of start with a kind of career blueprint um, which helps one I guess, define a track uh, for their particular um, life objectives in terms of business and educational objectives. And then we also uh, focus on that, you know, sales strategy and brand narrative and, and the development of the necessary uh, networks and collaboration that are required and some of the core skills like financial competence. But the area that um, I find a little bit unique is sort of our, our focus on project management for artists. And I wonder when you talk about um, sort of a capstone project. And we do something very similar in our business accelerator program. At least uh, it sounds similar. Uh, and my question is for for someone coming in cold who has never run a project, you know, there are parameters around being successful at um, executing or delivering a project, whether it has to do with breaking the project into milestones and uh, or um, how one decides to prioritize individual milestones and achieve sort of forward incremental progress, or, or, or it's simply documenting project uh, milestones and deliverables or measuring, you know, KPIs or whatever. So when, when you talk about it being sort of 50% business and 50% art practice, and then it has a capstone project, how do they acquire the necessary project management skills uh, to execute a project like that? Or is it sort of an all-encompassing education and execution moment for them? How does that work? That's a very good question. <laughs> so the, the tricky part is that it, you know, a lot of the students are coming in without a whole lot of experience, and some have and some haven't. But you know, the, the, the challenge is, well, the good thing in our program is that we're, we're a very small boutique School, you know, very small boutique. So we don't have hundreds of students in any class. You know, for us, a big class has got 25. And we also have a, a very heavy bias toward application. The Drucker brand name, uh, Drucker was very practice-based and very applied, not, not known to be heavily theoretical. So very applied orientation in what we do. So we tend to have a very high-touch and learning environment for our students. It's not to say we handhold, because I'm, I don't think that helps the students if we you know, do all the decision making for them. They need to figure it out by trial and error. But we do provide quite a good structure around the students, a lot of one-on-one -on -one consulting with them to help them. Of course, in class, you know, this is what a business plan should look like and that's all well and good, but you've still got to figure out how to make that work. So I think just by very virtue of being small and high touch and having a lot of industry people coming through the program as adjunct teachers or, or professors, I think that helps as well. And, and some students, as you well know, gravitate naturally towards this kind of work and for others it's, it can be a bit challenging, but that's our goal is to sort of push them all out the other end with a high level of competence and their ability to put together a, a, some kind of document that reports on the project that they've worked on. 
You know, it makes me want to ask you a rather pointed question, uh, because it is the Drucker School. And so we're talking about, um, I'm sure a lot of our audience knows, but we're talking about Peter F. Drucker, um, who is a management consultant whose work has appeared in the Harvard Business Review, the Atlantic Monthly, The Economist, who um, had a close relationship with uh, General Motors and is considered one of the foremost business thinkers in the history of business thinkers in our country, um, although he's Austrian-born, of course. And um, so he's not the standard person you would have in mind when um, you're talking about specifically the arts. Uh, and maybe there's more to the story that I don't know, and, and, and that's not true. But but I know that in the business world, we think, oh, yeah, Peter Drucker, of course, you know, Drucker's theories, Drucker's ideas about management, etc. And I think um, artists don't know who Peter Drucker is. Artists don't want to identify with Peter Drucker. Artists don't want to learn from Peter Drucker. And I'll, I'll tell you a little trick that we did the other day um, that proved me a little bit wrong. And then I'll ask my question. So the other day, we took our, our uh, graduate fellows within the... Uh, the Business Accelerator Program at the Clark Hillings Fund, and we assigned them to go read uh, business publications like uh, Inc. And, and Entrepreneur Magazine and to find articles that spoke to them and where they are in their career and to come back and share that material and explain why, um, why that article is applicable to their, their art career and their art business. And it was wildly successful, and people found a lot of use out of that. And what was funny is, uh, guess whose name arose <laughs> as, as a figure in a couple of those articles? It was Peter Drucker, you know, just ahead of the podcast with you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, we know who Peter Drucker is. I'm glad you're discovering that. So <laughs> the, the question to you is, uh, how does that shoe fit? Uh, on artists comfortably uncomfortably awkwardly at first and then it and then it you know it breaks in after a, f a few miles down the road or what that's a great question so i think the shoe initially doesn't fit but because it's a drucker shoe it ends up fitting very well and i'll give you three reasons why the drucker brand is a good brand to work with artists Peter Drucker actually had a phenomenal art collection. He, he collected Japanese Sancho art. And when he moved to Claremont, he retired from New York, and he moved to Claremont to teach Japanese art. And then we found out he was in town, so we actually hired him to the management school. So that's a fun fact. Uh, I've got a book on my bookshelf when his uh, collection was exhibited in, in Seattle, and he actually writes about his fascination with this form of art and, and why the collection. That's number one. Number two, Peter Drucker was a huge proponent of the importance of a non-profit sector. Now, I know that's not entirely the case for visual artists. They're trying to make profit, but many of the institutions that support art are non-profit institutions. And he really firmly believed that the non-profit sector needed to learn from the for-profit sector to be more effective. So again, we've got a real bias toward the non-profit side. The third point would be really the Drucker principles, and there are two that I want to draw on. Number one, we see management as a liberal art. Now, what that means is that we see that management is around the human condition and uh, treating people well and treating people with dignity and respect. So that humanistic approach that we take does resonate with a lot of people from the arts community. And related to that, another Drucker principle that I think is really important, and you alluded to this when Peter Drucker was born in Vienna and he actually went to England just before World War II, but a lot of his work, early work, wasn't on management. It was actually on, so he was a sociologist and he wrote about functioning societies. 
and he paid attention to people and the dysfunction that was going on around him in Europe during World War II and the lack of meaning and purpose that a lot of people had. And he realized that work and going to work gave people meaning and purpose, and that's why he got involved in management. So at the heart of Peter Drucker is this sense of humanity and meaning and purpose and the, the importance of a functioning society. So artists may t- tackle issues that relate to society at large and the dysfunction we see around us and the, the lack of purpose that many people have. And these values are really aligned with Drucker values. Well, that's fascinating. You know, I, I do know that in um, in 79, he was uh, a contributing writer to a book on Japanese painting from uh, published by the Seattle Art Museum called strangely Song of the Bruce which is, seems totally unrelated to Japanese painting and has to do with Robert the Bruce and I'd like to find out more like why why is it called that <laughs> but and, and I've got that book on my bookshelf that's the one I was referring to because it talks about it, it's exactly the book and and it talks about his art collection and his fascination with Japanese art in fact he was really fascinated with Japanese culture and um, his philosophy is a very Confucius orientors and there was a famous article back in the early 80s in Harvard Business Review about Peter Drucker on Japan and the question really was uh, you know did Peter Drucker bring ideas from the west to the east or the east to the west and and now that I go to Japan on my job I'm actually quite convinced that he brought ideas from the east to the west and a lot of the work he writes about when he talks about you know, continuity and change and you know, balancing the old and the new or treating people well or how we treat customers. It looks very, it has the hallmarks of what I've seen in Japan. Well, I, I wonder if that East-West exchange is, is, is that why uh, it's called Song of the Bruce? Is it referring to what I'm thinking of, which is a, an epic poem called The Bruce or is that something else? I don't know. I can't answer the question. I've, I've got the book on my shelf. I should have a closer read. <laughs> can't answer it. I'm sorry. Fascinating. I'll, I'm going to dig it up. I, Google exists. I'm going to go after it at some point, but uh, because that is a fascinating uh, aspect of history in and of itself. Well, so I want to ask you then, um, just to kind of finish that out this segment uh, a little bit, it seems that people always say, well, educational institutions need to keep in step with the changing market. And very often when I hear that things are in rapid change, we have to keep pace. I'm often more, it's sort of like a magician's trick where it, it's based on misdirection in, in, or redirection. Um, so um, there's a loud noise and the magician is pointing at it. You can be almost certain that the actual thing that's occurring is occurring in the opposite direction from which the, the magician is pointing you. you. It may be, that's where the real thing is happening. So I often think when people are pointing at rapid change, I'm more interested in how much stays the same. Um, but, but that's preface to ask you this question. First, um, everybody, you know, the cliche is, of course, the art market is changing. Look at technology. Uh, maybe a, a more profound case for the art market is changing is look at the ways in which artists can now reach a public directly. And that certainly is a major change. Uh, we see that politically with the Arab Spring and, and the rise of social media. Um, see it politically in the United States. Direct access to deliver your ideas, your concepts, your vision to another person uh, is available to everyone. So my question is, is that change affecting... Um, business education for artists in as profound a way as it is affecting uh, business for artists? And um, if so, is that impacting how um, the program chooses to evolve and deliver education? Or 
is it more important what is staying the same and sort of the timeless skills that we're, we're talking about when we refer to somebody like Peter Drucker and uh, learning the core skills of business? Yeah, and you know, we struggle with this. So the obvious answer, the immediate answer is online, online education, you know, and, and, and learning management systems. And we struggle with this quite a lot as an institution. We've been quite late to the party to, to go online and to figure out what we want to do with that. And we've really held on to an older traditional model where we believe in the value of the conversation in the classroom and we've not really jumped onto the online bandwagon until we can be sure the technology allows us to provide a rich, deep conversation. So, so going back, you know, I see my job as a professor as being an orchestra conductor and that's how I, what I do when I'm in front of the classroom. I'm only one person with a certain lot of knowledge, but I've got 25 people in the room that are quite completely different people with different knowledge. And even though I may be trying to keep you to some kind of you know, script, at least loosely, it's <laughs> a bit of improvisation, you know, it, it's interesting. So, so technology certainly is disrupting. I think the other thing that I think about probably more than that, so we're embracing change and we're moving along, is, is, what, is what does it mean to create thought leadership? That's something that I really think about quite a lot. And, you know, when you think about how easy it is now for people to write, um, post blog posts and write a book and publish a book and, and to your audience, you know, even produce art, you know, the question comes down to who has the right to call themselves a thought leader? So if I stay within the world I know, I have a PhD and I've published, you know, a lot. Um, but now there's not the, the value of that has become more diminished because everybody can jump on the bandwagon and write and publish. So I hope we get to a crossroads that we really examine the principle of thought leadership and we actually return to some of what we have of really good critical examination of concept and construct because I think we've lost that a little bit and what I see online is just the same stuff being recycled and you know we, I, I don't want to get into fact checking and <laughs> political discussion but you know, the idea that anyone can make things up and say things, we don't know if it's true and it's not that critical. And I think we've lost a little bit in the passage of time. And, and while technology has helped us a lot, I think it's also enabled many people to jump on the thought leadership bandwagon. And I think the same probably applies to art as well. Well, it certainly is uh, an interesting conundrum. We face the same thing in terms of uh, figuring out which of our programs are best delivered by, by what medium. So I have a lot of respect for that. Um, all right, so I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and ask you a little bit uh, about nonprofits in sort of a last segment of the show. Now, you're involved with uh, the Getty Leadership Program, including NextGen 2018, which uh, provides education for mid-career museum employees. And so this is fostering leadership in the arts. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question about museums in particular. Um, we've done a show before um, on this podcast about uh, an episode on how artists can collaborate uh, with museums and museum curators. So let's focus for a minute on museums. How are museums facing the future? Um, and are they doing it through innovation or, as we were talking about just a moment ago, um, sort of sticking to a tried and true path? I I'm asking about their adaption too. Yeah, I'll, start, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question with the easy answer first. I'll look at the technology piece and I'll move into the more complicated answer. 
a couple of years ago, digitization was the number one topic that was coming through. We, we asked our Getty Fellows before they joined the program to talk about the strategic challenges that they had. And digitization was really critical. It was, it was the number one issue. And it was about how do we digitize collections? So it was a very internal issue. But when they digitized collections, the question then became, what do we do with them? Do we do what Tate Modern's done in the UK and, and allow anyone to access the collection? Or do we make it more restricted? But if I move away, and that's just an ongoing debate, it just will change as technology changes. But I think the more strategic issue, the 30,000-foot issue that faces museums, is around audience development and audience engagement. Now, this depends on who funds the museum. So if you're a taxpayer-funded museum, you know, the uh, the main museum in British Columbia, I'm thinking about one of our fellows from there, you have a mandate to serve the whole community, the whole of the province of British Columbia. And so what does audience development mean to you and how do you engage audiences when your mandate is to serve everybody? So what we've seen over the last few years is a lot of audiences, you know, especially those that are taxpayer-funded, are being forced, some happily, some not happily, to cater to larger audiences where the main demographic that visits the audience, uh, the museum and gives money is, is, is normally, I, I don't like using this expression, but the research supports it, sort of the older white, you know, uh, wealthier woman are the, are the most common patrons. So you've got this real conundrum going on between audience development that could alienate the course. It's very similar to the earlier conversation we had about art and art. Um, you know, do you alienate your core audience or not? Same thing's happening in museums. And then when you do embark upon a program of audience development, you end up confusing the brand. So so once we've expanded our audience and, and dealt with you know, younger people and families and um, you know, young professionals who may want to you know, engage with the arts and, uh, now that they're adults, what do you do about the core, the core audience, the ones who actually probably give you the most support financially? And that's become a real issue. And how does the brand manoeuvre and evolve as your audience um, expands? And then just to finish off the next iteration of that, when we had the next, the next year of museum leaders in, those who had done audience development ended up not having enough resources to serve all of their audiences. So they're having to streamline and abandon some audiences and focus in a little bit more on a fewer number of audiences. So to me, that's been the most interesting observation that I've made in the last three or four years as I've worked with these museum leaders, this challenge that's unresolved. Well, now, just returning to this issue of museums collaborating with, with artists, by which I mean, of course, living artists. Uh, obviously, there wouldn't be muse- art museums without artists. <laughs> but is, are you seeing any movement in this area, any push to encourage um, artist engagement, uh, living artist engagement with museums or museum engagement with living artists? Uh, and is there, um, is there an interest in how artists are funded or how to... In ensure that there's a sustainable crop of future living artists to work with? I can answer the first part of the question better than I can the second, but I think a lot of the museums, you know, the two words that popped into my head as you were asking the question was one about how do we engage audiences and how do we, and secondly, how do we provide immersive experiences? So bringing artists into the museum or taking the museum out into the community, which may include artists, has been a big part of what museums have tried to do to, to remain relevant and contemporary to a wider range of audiences. So I, I agree with the question. I think it's it's 
perhaps a newer phenomenon. I'm not quite sure in the history of museums whether there's been so much um, you know, breaking down the walls of museums to bring artists inside and, 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 and museums outside. But I think it's a, it's a phenomenon that probably is here to stay for a little while. It's always uh, kind of funny, you know, an artist will, will kind of quip that, uh, well, um, I haven't been to X art museum, but don't worry, my plan is to get there after I'm dead. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of a, a, a sad commentary a little bit that that you have all these living artists. and The only way to get in the museum is first you have to die. <laughs> it's like a kind of heaven for artists. So uh, there's certainly a lot of hope now that uh, among a lot of visual artists that we talk to, that there is some loosening of that barrier or some that this uh, new bid for engagement through immersive experiences, as you as you put it, um, will soften the barrier also for visual artists. Um, I'm not sure it has softened much, but maybe it's taffy-like. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think in different uh, contexts, we talk about co-creating value and you know, this idea that it wasn't that many years ago in the 80s, even the 90s, that there were real barriers between an organization and the customers. And, and we put these walls up and we didn't break the walls down. But a lot of organizations, and it's not just art organizations, it's, you, know, you, you want co-creation. You want to bring the customers in and be involved in the creation of the experience. And we see museums are a great example. I think they really pioneered uh, co-creation of, of experience and value more than other sectors have and other sectors, you know, retail for example are borrowing a lot from museums but I think that's what we have found ourselves in, this, this porous boundaries between people between institutions, the sharing the, the co-creation, the experiential uh, opportunities and I think that's something that's, that we need to pay attention to, visual artists of course included in that uh, let me ask you a little bit more about this NextGen program. I just have a few more questions as we wind down the show. And in the NextGen program, uh, participants identify strategic solutions to challenges in the arts. Uh, what I'm curious about is, you know, you hear that language and it's hard to put it in concrete terms. What is a, a concrete problem and solution that stood out or stands out for you? That's a really good question. So a little bit depends on the level that the person's at. So NextGen is different to the GLI program. So the way I would talk about a next-gen person, they're, they're heading up toward a, a more strategic leadership role, but they're probably still in a more functional area. So the problems that they might bring might be more specifically around, you know, how do I improve, you know, should I charge, should, should I charge entries in the museum? And that's one we get quite a lot. Or should I re-engineer uh, the subscription program? Or how do I engage more audiences? How do I use digital technology to engage audiences? So they'll probably the, the problems are going to be more confined to a functional area. Uh, you know, other problems we have might even be, you know, how do we rotate collections? How do we manage the, the limited space we have for the collections we have? So again, probably a little bit more functional, operational, um, and not sort of looking right across the organisation where it might be more about how do I engage the board or, you know, how do I fundraise and, and, and bring in revenue streams to support the museum at, at large, but very much, you know, more functional problems that they'd be trying to solve. Now, uh, the participants in the program, they have three to five years of museum management experience, which is um, in itself uh, an innovative educational strategy to, to take them at this level. What are the challenges in creating an education program that targets uh, people that are essentially already um, industry leaders? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. So depending on, again, where they're at, if they're industry leaders, we try and encourage them to be even more you know, thought leaders and, and provide points of view and positions in the industry. But I think what we find is that, that even when we're in a position of leadership, we're always coming across things that we haven't necessarily experienced. Or we might, the, the privilege of being back in class and giving yourself time away from your job to come back to the classroom to indulge in some learning, whether it's refreshing what you already know, putting different frameworks in place to help organise things you know, or simply being exposed to new things, to comparing and contrasting what you do in your museum with what others do in other museums, remembering that our, our footprint is very global, so with the Getty Leadership Programme, not so much the next gen, somewhat international, but Getty Leadership is half international, so we get people in from all around the world in private museums and, and government-funded museums from from, you know, the Middle East through to Europe, through to North America, through to China, and they find that the problems aren't that dissimilar, but maybe there are different contexts, of course, but, but to, to, ha to have that cross-facilitation, and for me being involved in the program, the thing I really enjoy is watching the personal growth, the bringing down of the barriers to allow, you know, the, the vulnerability that comes with that as we expose ourselves and we, we share and learn from each other, and then to watch people leave after the program somewhat refreshed, but also revitalised, and with a, a, a real sense of hope and optimism about what they can do next as leaders of their organisations. Where is the, the Drucker Art Management Program and the Art Business Program heading next? What, what next evolution do you predict? I think... For now, I, I think there's a, still a bit of growth for both programs, so growth and then solidifying what we have. Uh, we've just launched a new Interfield degree, and that's specifically for students who are in the MFA program to add management, so let's bring it down another notch so they can lose some management while they're in the finance program. I think, and I'm probably speaking out of turn, I, I think there's a real gap in the market right now for us to take a slightly more experienced, you know, seasoned artist and work with them, um, and and that's a slightly different market with different needs. But, there's a, but if you think that learning is lifelong, and we can dip in and out of education at any point in our life, depending on our context and needs at the time, I think we could do some more with that particular audience and what we're currently doing. And what about for you, yourself? What's next for your research? So, so for me, I spend a lot of time actually getting up to speed with the arts, and I've really enjoyed that because I like different contexts. But for me right now, I'm the dean of the business school, and so I don't have as much time for research as I would like. Um, but the things I'm doing are, are more questions that I face in a position of leadership. So there are a couple of things that swirl around in my head, and any one of these could be my next topic, so you've heard it first here. So one of it is around how we structure organizations and and. Some of the things I grapple with are the issue of centralising or decentralising different functional areas and there's a lot about just how do we structure organisations to make them more effective and even if we put a structure in place, what other softer qualitative things do we have to have in place? Number one. Number two, I am leading a turnaround at the moment. We're in a really tough market and we're actually reinvigorating our business so that could be something else I do more research on. And number three, 
you know, I'm in a position as a woman dean, and there aren't a whole lot of women deans, and I work in a, in a world that's often very male-dominated. So what I find really interesting now that I am in a position of leadership as a woman, and you think you've broken through the glass ceiling, but there comes a whole lot of other things that you hadn't actually anticipated. You know, like, and in fact, I watched the movie The Post recently with Meryl Streep and, and it's about Washington Post, and I actually took more away from that movie about gender issues, which I hate to say haven't changed a whole lot since the time that movie was in you know, the time period, as I, I took as much away about gender issues and leadership as I did about the story of Washington Post. So I think, you know, for women who are listening, we get into positions of leadership and a whole lot of different uh, situations arise that we hadn't perhaps anticipated or, or prepared ourselves for. So any one of those three projects are on the, on the what's next list. <laughs> Well, uh, clearly, from listening to you, you've got the Dean Gene, if I may risk uh, a pun. And uh, so it's it's nice to find that. I think you're a, a living challenge to uh, some of those glass barriers. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you tune in. For more information on Jenny's work, visit JennyDarrick.com. That's Jenny, D-A-R-R-O-C-H dot com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org. And to sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit ClarkHewlingsFund.org slash donate. Even a small gift helps extend our programming and bring it to a wider audience. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Jenny. It's been really great having you. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful opportunity.